Thank you, brother. These 10 verses, the first 10 verses that our brother Bill just read, were all about the tabernacle, the Jewish tabernacle. And you know that the majority of the last part of the book of Exodus, from all the way from chapter 25 to the very end of chapter 40, is all about God's instructions and the actual construction of the tabernacle. That's a whole lot of scripture about this tent. So here's the question, what is the big deal about the tabernacle anyway? Right? It's just a tent. Well, here's the answer. The answer is is two words. God's presence. That's what it was all about. So let's think about the power of God's presence with us. You know, this is what the majority of humanity throughout the ages has sought the presence of God through all kinds of oftentimes crazy religious practices. And that's what religion is. It's man trying to reach up to God through all kinds of means. And that's why God has given us His Word. It's His revelation. God reaching down to us because we could never reach up and grasp Him on our own. But this is the deepest desire of any human being, whether they know it or not. We've been made in God's image, and so we want God's presence. There's a heart longing, and people chase all kinds of things trying to find it. All kinds of things that are lesser than God trying to find God's presence. Well, the tabernacle was, in a sense, the very portal between heaven and earth during the time of the Old Covenant. So we're going to look at three different um, aspects of meaning for the tabernacle. Um, If you're joining us for the first time this morning, we've been going through the book of Hebrews, and we don't know who the author is, so if I use the word mystery man, I'm talking about the writer, but we know that God's Spirit inspired this writer. And so you can follow along in the listening guide inside the bulletin, Um, I'm going to be looking at a lot of different scriptures. I've got them all printed out here for you, so you don't have to um, lose your place if you're looking around in the the scriptures. Uh, You can hang on to this for reference later as well. So we're going to look first at the tabernacle's cosmic meaning. Then we're going to look at the tabernacle's earthly meaning, and then we're going to land the plane here looking at the tabernacle's spiritual meaning. So let's talk about the cosmic meaning of the tabernacle. Well, the tabernacle housed the Ark of the Covenant, which was guarded within the most holy place, and the Ark of the Covenant was considered by the Hebrews to be the footstool for God's heavenly throne, as it were, an extension of God's governance of the cosmos all the way down to earth, right at the point, radiating out of the point of the Ark of the Covenant. It represented God's presence on earth. Now the tabernacle was just a big tent. It could be taken up and it could be set down. And early in Israel's history, after they had been led out by Moses from captivity, they were nomads. And so they're traveling about and they're actually taking down and putting up the tabernacle. And so it traveled with Israelites and it lived in the very center of the camp. And so in a sense, God was camping with his people. 
and, and his people could actually set up and take down the very place on earth where God dwelt. Now, who would want that job? Would you want to be the guy who set up and took down the Holy of Holies? I don't think I'd want that job. Um, I'd be terrified. I'd be terrified I touched the wrong thing, right? Well, God was dwelling, camping with his people. In Exodus 25, verse 8 through 9, when God gave Moses the instructions, he said this, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. And so we have these 15 chapters, and there were a few different things that happened outside the, the construction of the tabernacle, but the majority of these chapters, they're getting the instructions or they're crafting this tabernacle. Then we read at the very end of Exodus in some of the very last verses, verses 34 and 35 of Exodus chapter 40, what happened after the, when they dedicated this, this tent. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, of course, we know the glory of the Lord fills the universe. What human could create anything that could contain God? Again, the humility of God revealing himself in a visible sense a way that he was showing his people that he was living among them. And so that was the function of the tabernacle. But you know, the tabernacle also pointed back to the Garden of Eden. It pointed back to the very beginning of the Bible. God's purpose of creation in the Garden of Eden was to dwell with humanity, to dwell with man on the earth. And there were some striking similarities in the details that God gave the Jews and how they were to construct the tabernacle that actually pointed them back in their minds to the very Garden of Eden. Because again, the purpose of the tabernacle was the same as the garden, a place for God to dwell with his people. Now, we're going to see in a little bit, in the tabernacle, access to God was very limited. Whereas in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve would walk God before they fell into sin. Now, several things that you'll note that tie these things together. Both Eden and the tabernacle were entered from the east and were guarded by cherubim. Cherubim were powerful angels uh, that, that could cover themselves with wings and we see on the Ark of the Covenant in Exodus 25 instructions for two cherubim to cover the Ark. And, and on the actual veil that separated the holy place from the Holy of Holies, there were cherubim that were sewn onto the fabric of the veil. Very ornate cherubim. And we know that God placed cherubim after Adam's fall, guarding the entrance of Eden so that man may not enter. And so what were the cherubim actually doing? Were they, were they guarding God from mankind? Actually, what the cherubim were doing was guarding mankind from God's holiness, from the fatality of God's holiness. Numbers 18 says that anyone who would transgress the veil, 
any priest who accidentally even crossed into the Holy of Holies would be struck dead. It was a death penalty for them. And so the cherubim were, in a sense, protecting humanity from the wrath of a holy God, reminding them that there was a separation. God is holy, and our sin keeps us from his presence. Well, there were some other similarities between the tabernacle furniture and that, that pointed back to Eden. That the lampstand that we see uh, prescribed for its creation in Exodus 25 was actually floral in design, right? Likely patterned after and symbolizing the idea of the very tree of life. In the, in the book of Numbers, the, the Levites who were to serve in the tabernacle, in the, in the holy place, right, they were actually called to serve and to keep or guard the tabernacle. And, and these Hebrew words, abad for serve and samar for guard or keep, were the actual same words that were given to Adam in Genesis chapter 2 verse 15, that he was to keep Eden and to serve in Eden. Moreover, in Genesis chapter 3, we see that the Lord God walked in Eden. In, in Leviticus chapter 26, we see a picture of the Lord walking in his tabernacle. So the tabernacle pointed and reminded the Jews of God's presence in a more shadowy form with all kinds of, of, of guards so they couldn't get too close. But it pointed back to a more beautiful time in Eden in which God dwelt intimately with his people. But it also pointed forward, and it points forward for us today, to the end times, to the very end, what we call the eschaton, the end of time when what we see in Revelation chapter 21 and 22 is the new Jerusalem, that is the heavenly kingdom, coming down to earth. And we see in chapter 21 this, this vision of heaven meaning earth, and, and heaven is pictured for us in Revelation 21 as this giant city made of gold, and it's this huge cube, all right, which sounds kind of weird, but it's this huge cube, and it's 12,000 stadia in length and width and height, and just to give you an idea of the size of that, the, the footprint would be about half of the size of Europe, Okay, so that's one big city that we see coming down. Now, what is interesting to note here is it's pure gold, and we see all kinds of, of all, all, the, all the furniture in the, in the tabernacle is to be covered in, in gold, representing God's glory and great value. Okay, in fact, the word glory means value. You know, the word in Hebrew, kabod, means value. So we all worship things of value. Right, whether they be great sports moves or beautiful sunsets or the Lord God himself, when we behold value or glory, we worship. And so the idea of the tabernacle was to point to that. And that's the idea that we see in Revelation of this, of this heavenly city coming down to earth. Like the idea literally of heaven meeting earth, but it's this cube. Well, there's only one place in the whole Bible, other than Revelation 21, that we see a cube. And you know where that is? It's the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. It was designed to be a perfect cube. And like the furnishings of the tabernacle, this city we see in Revelation is made of pure 
gold, and it has, we read in Revelation 22, a tree of life. There it is. We read in verse 2, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of nations. And so when we see this picture of God's kingdom of heaven once again coming back down to live on earth, right, and for the earth to truly be full of his glory, just as Eden was to become, Eden was frankly, I believe, to expand and to fill the earth as, as Adam and Eve's children would multiply. That was the whole idea, for the earth to, to be filled with God's glory. And then, of course, we sinned. And so you had the tabernacle, which was God's means, his temporary means of dwelling with his people, but pointing to a future reality in which that would really happen. So we read in Revelation chapter 21, Verses 1 through 4, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. By the way, the sea, if you're a sea lover, you're like, man, that sounds like a bummer. No more water, you know? No more surfing or sailing. Well, actually, the sea in the Old Testament represents wickedness and evil. So what he's saying is, and it's not saying there's no, no more water in the future earth. What he's saying is that there'll be no more wickedness in the future earth. No more sin. No more affliction. The sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold the dwelling place, which in the Greek actually literally means the tabernacle. The tabernacle of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The former things have passed away. And so the the future brothers and sisters that we have to look forward to when we talk about heaven, right now heaven is in another dimension somewhere. But when we think of eternity, we should be thinking of this planet a reformed and a recreated earth that God has chosen to come back and recreate to live here with his people. And so it is nothing less than a return to Eden. But I think on steroids, even greater, right? Because God loves the earth. And after judging it, he's going to recreate the new heavens and the new earth where he will reign with no more curse of the fall. So that in a nutshell, was the tabernacle's cosmic significance. But the, ta- the tabernacle also had an earthly meaning, right? Right in the, in the life experience of the Jews as they were first d- dwelling in the, in the wilderness of Sinai and then later before they actually built the temple, but they had the tabernacle set up in the promised land. What, what was the earthly meaning of the tabernacle? Well, after, after the fall of man into sin and his banishment from Eden, the tabernacle became the representative dwelling place of God on earth among its people in the Old Covenant. And the Hebrew word most frequently used to describe the tabernacle is miskin, which simply means dwelling. And so bear in mind again, what was inside the tabernacle? Well, there was furniture. There was the Ark of the Covenant, which was a chest. There was a table for food, showbread, there was a lampstand, items that point to the tabernacle's use as a home, the, the home, as it were, of God. 
Now the extensive use, as I mentioned before, of gold simply reminded everybody of God's majesty and his glory. Well, the tabernacle showcased God's presence in their midst, but they had limited access. And you know, again, it just blows my mind that humans would be allowed by a humble God to set up and take down his dwelling place. But that's, that's what happened. That's the way God designed it. And, and so then they would take their journeys and set up God's dwelling place. But you know what? It's not as if they were controlling the Lord. The Lord was leading them, remember, by the pillar of cloud or fire by night. And where that pillar would stop, they would set up his place, and then they would order their camp all around the tabernacle, and the pillar of cloud would descend, and God would camp with them. And yet, they couldn't just stroll in because God was holy. And they were not. I've got a couple of pictures just to show you to give you an idea here. Um, some of you have seen slides like this. Um, this first one just kind of gives you an overall uh, outside bird's eye view of the structure. The uh, entire tabernacle, uh, the holy place, the most holy place, measured 15 feet wide by 45 feet long. That would just be the holy of holies and the, the holy place. So that's the tent that you see in the, in the middle. And the outer courtyard was, was the furthest that any non-Levite could ever journey. They could bring their sacrifices to the bronze altar where Levites would sacrifice uh, uh, as, a, as a picture of atonement for their sins, a, a, a covering, as it were, for their sins, and then they would leave. And you notice there was only one gate, one way in and one way out. Let's go to the next slide. This just kind of gives you a a little idea of the furniture, right? Specifically inside the holy place, you had the candlestick, the altar of incense, and the table of showbread. And then inside of the holy of holies, of course, you had the Ark of the Covenant. Next photo. Now the veil of the tabernacle that separated the holy place and the holy of holies or the most holy place was a heavy screen. Some sources say that it was, a, it was fabric that was likely inches thick, so it would have weighed a ton. If it, if it fell on you, it would have crushed you to death, right? If you, took a, you, know, if you ran at it, you would likely, you, you couldn't just run through it, okay? It was a thick uh, uh, screen of fabric ornately uh, woven with the cherubim, as I mentioned before, and its point was to, to separate even the priests from the very presence of God, where the Ark of the Covenant was held. And so our, our uh, writer here, Mystery Man, gives us a tour of the tabernacle, starting in verse 1 of our text. He says, Not, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship. And I think that's just an understatement, frankly. Um, and an earthly place of holiness. I mean, they had all kinds of regulations. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place, verse 3. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, or the holy of holies, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. 
On these things, or of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. Now, each of these items that Mystery Man here details for us um, in the Holy of Holies reminded the Israelites of God's holiness and faithfulness, both items in the Holy of Holies and, of course, in the Holy Place. So the, the Ark of the Covenant reminded them of God's presence among his people and his holiness. The, the urn of manna reminded them of God's provision for his people during 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Now Aaron's budded staff, that reminded them of God's chosen priesthood. It was Aaron that God elected, not his competitors, no one else to be the high priest. And the tablets, right, those actual original um, stone tablets autographed by the hand of God himself, right, the ten, that the Ten Commandments were etched into, well, those reminded them of God's promises of the covenant. So we see presence and provision and priesthood and promises. Promises where God said, if you obey me, I will bless you. Now, when I was first reading this, I found it interesting that Mystery Man here includes the altar of incense. If you look at the text carefully, he actually includes that or he mentions that in his description of the Holy of Holies. But when you look back in Exodus, you see actually the altar of incense was on the other side of the veil in the holy place. And so some people kind of scratch their head at that. Uh, Let me just say the author of Hebrews clearly knew exactly where the altar of incense was located. I think what he's doing here is he's situating it or he's associating it with the Holy of Holies because it served a very important function on the Day of Atonement. That as, a, as a high priest would go in once a year to anoint or to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, he first had to light, they first had to burn all kinds of incense such that a, a cloud of incense would kind of protect the, would, would actually still kind of separate him in a sense from the actual ark or the actual mercy seat and what he was doing. Okay, so I think that's why we see it listed here in the, in the, as part of the, the Holy of Holies. Well, interestingly enough, as, as Mystery Man gives us this tour of the tabernacle, in verse 6, he, he changes verb tense from past to present. And some people scratch their head and they're like, well, why, why, why does he go from talking about it in the past to talking about it in the present? And I think what he's saying is, hey, let's get together in a time machine and go back and be a part of this together. Okay, as if we are there in the middle of all this ritual. And so here's what he says in verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Now I just described what happened on the Day of Atonement. Okay, normally in the camp when the tabernacle was set up, every day people would bring in uh, uh, animals to uh, be sacrificed as, as a covering for their sins. And, and, and you know, there were a lot of Levites who were involved. I mean, it was a bloody affair. All kinds of animals being killed, um, you know, burning the meat, burning the carcasses on, this, on, this, on the bronze altar outside. 
And, and so it was a great privilege. You might only get the privilege once in your lifetime as a Levite to actually be called to work and minister inside the actual holy place. And that would be for a week. Okay, so you would take care of the, the table of showbread. You would, you would burn incense in there. And, and, and so you would, you know, that, that, was a, and, and, you know, that was quite the thing. But once a year, one, the, the high priest, once a year was called to actually go into the Holy of Holies and to scatter this blood as an atonement, we read, for the unintentional, unintentional sins of the people on the Day of Atonement. So this was to cover the sins of ignorance. Well, what about intentional sins? Like David, when he slept with Bathsheba and had her husband killed. That wasn't an unintentional sin, all right? David, I mean, his sin, his sin nature took him further than I think he intended to go when the whole affair started up. But that was not an unintentional sin. So what about that? Well, here's the deal. Here's the point. The, the whole sacrificial system of the tabernacle had no provision for intentional sins like David's. Frankly, it had no, in, no provision for the intentional sins that I've done or that you've done. And so that's why David could only cast himself on God's mercy, which is what he did in Psalm 51. That there was no sacrifice he could make to undo what he did. He had to simply call out to God and say, I cast myself on you. Please forgive me. Verse 8, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened. As long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, and, and bear in mind we're still in the time machine, it's as if we're there in, in, in their age, okay, at that, at that moment. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. And so the big point here is that the tabernacle reminded the Jews of God's presence with them. But it gave them very limited access because it reminded them of their sin. And it frankly provided very limited provision for their sins. They were separate from a holy God and it did not provide a clean conscience or even inner peace, inner heart peace with God. There was a covering for sin but there was no cleansing of sinful hearts. But what the tabernacle did accomplish was it pointed to the perfect sacrifice who had come to redeem and cleanse them and to come and cleanse us from our sins eternally. And that leads us to our last point. That is the tabernacle's spiritual meaning. Now there were all kinds of elements of the tabernacle that pointed to Jesus Christ. I already mentioned the lampstand in the holy place. Remember Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. Or the bread of the presence. There were 12 loaves that symbolized, represented the 12 tribes of Israel in there. Well, when Jesus came on the scene, he said, I am the bread of life. Inside the Holy of Holies, we read about Aaron's budded staff that was housed for a time in the Ark of the Covenant. Well, 
Jesus is our perfect high priest. We think about the, the tablets of stone, those original Ten Commandments that were kept inside the ark. Well, Jesus is the only and the perfect law keeper. Everybody else fell short, and he fulfilled that very law. On top of that Ark of the Covenant was the, the mercy seat, the idea of, of God's throne represented on earth as his heavenly footstool where the, the priests would go and would sprinkle blood as a, a picture of, of atonement for the unknown or unintended sins of the people once a year. Well, we read in 1 John 2, 2 that Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins. He is the one who truly was able to cover not only the unintentional sins, but all of our sins. And the Ark of the Covenant itself, which represented the very presence of God on earth, was fulfilled at all points to Jesus Christ. Morgan, Morgan and I had an interesting conversation last week about this, and he reminded me of, in my opinion, the greatest movie ever made, or one of the best, Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? First Indiana Jones movie. And what we were talking about was, okay, what if we discovered the Ark of the Covenant today? All right? What if we did? What if an archaeologist today found the Ark of the Covenant? Now, there's all kinds of theories. Some think it's in heaven right now. You know, you know God has purposely, you know, you know, um, you know, squirreled it away somewhere that we'll never find it. But let's just say we found the ark and we opened it up. You remember what happens at the end of the movie, right? The spirit of God or the, you know, kind of the angel of death comes out and strikes all the Nazis. You know, it's great end of the movie, right? But Spielberg probably got it wrong or he did get it wrong. You know why? God's presence is no longer contained to the ark of the covenant. You know where, you know where he lives right now? He lives inside us. Those of us who are trusting in Christ, he's in us. And that comes to us through Jesus, through his presence. The Ark of the Covenant points to Jesus coming to this world and living among us. Jesus said in Matthew 28, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so if you are in Christ, his spirit is in you. And therefore, God's presence isn't just in a box uh, with all these barriers that you can't get through. God's presence is in your heart. And we're going to talk about it in a moment, but our job then is to get out there and to expand His presence in this world, right? By reflecting His light. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt. The, the Greek word is tabernacled. He set up His tent, as it were. Among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. So let's look at verse 11 as we flesh out the tabernacle's spiritual meaning. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, again, remember, this, this tent that people made was a representation of God's throne room of heaven, which we can't even begin to imagine, but we should. We should think on that and, and do our recognizing that our, our brains are limited by space and time, things that God is not limited by, okay? Um, 
uh, a size that we can't fathom, beauty we can't fathom, but God's very throne room, the very presence of, of God, that's where Jesus went when he, when, he, when he said, it is finished, right? And it says that he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood or goats or calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So in Matthew 27, verse 50, we read that on the cross, after suffering for hours, Jesus cried out and with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And that's what happened when he yielded up his spirit. And, and here on earth, in the temple which had replaced the tabernacle, the curtain of the temple, that, that veil, that I mean, a whole bunch of us could have gone and tugged on that thing. We wouldn't have torn it. Okay, That veil was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and rocks were split. Jesus had provided atonement, full atonement, on the cross when he gave his lifeblood for our sins. And then he ascended directly from there to heaven, to the very throne room of God, the true holy of holies. And he presented the sacrifice, which was his own blood, to God the Father for you and for me and for all who trust in him because of our sins. And so Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection from the dead changed everything. It, it ended the old covenant and the whole old covenant system, the whole tabernacle and temple sacrificial system that was limited or marked by limited access and imperfect consciences. And it ushered in a new covenant for everyone who believes in him, for everyone who is in his blood. And it secured for us an eternal Redemption, the text says. Well, what does that mean? Eternal redemption. Well, it means complete forgiveness of sin. It means eternal salvation. And it means access to God. It doesn't mean that we should take God lightly. For God is still as holy and powerful as He ever was. But what it means is when you bow your heart in sincere prayer... The, the God who made everything and presides over the, the trillions of trillions of planets and the billions of billions of galaxies and everything that we can imagine, everything that we have no clue about, right? I don't know if there's just a universe or if there's a metaverse or whatever. All that God made and he rules over. Every dimension God is in charge of, okay? Uh, down to the atomic structure of our own world. He is holding it all together by his power, and he's listening at the same time to your prayer. So let's not take prayer lightly, brothers and sisters. Let's not waste our prayers. You know, I, you know I wish, I love you all, so I gotta, I gotta say this. Um, during ABF in here, we ended with 10 or 15 minutes of prayer, and I looked up a couple times, and you know what, I saw more conversations than I saw prayers. I wish we could go back in time a little bit and not waste that time. Now, it was great that y'all were having fellowship, but we were choosing what was second best over what was best. And I, I long for us to be a, a prayerful church, a church on our knees. What would God do if we were on our knees every week, crying out to Him, recognizing that the Almighty God of the universe is listening to every word. 
So I think a lot of it comes back to our own faith. Do we believe this? Or do we think we're talking to Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy? Let's be a, I, I challenge you. Um, in your daily life, do not neglect prayerfulness. Do not neglect prayerfulness. God is not just your imaginary buddy. He is the Lord of creation with all the power of the universe, right? And, and maybe you think, you know what? I, I, I've shied away from prayer because I don't know that he really wants to listen to me because he knows what I've done. Guess what? That is the beauty of eternal redemption, what Jesus has done. He's given you access to God because of his cross work, because of his atonement, because he died on the cross in your place. Not only did God put on him every sin of yours, including last week or yesterday or this morning, what you did, what I did, not only did God put all that on him, but God has given you and me the gift of Christ's righteousness. So when he looks at me, he doesn't see my sin of anger. He sees the beauty of Christ. And so I do have access to him. So let's not take that for granted, brothers and sisters. Let's, let's grow to become a people of prayer so that we might be used by him in a, in a great way. Verses 13 and 14 says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify the purification of the flesh, and what he's talking about here are Old Testament rites of ceremonial purification like in numbers 19 we even read about this kind of crazy wasn't crazy because god set it up but it was this thing where if you touched a corpse and you were ceremonially unclean okay you, you could go to a priest and you could actually have the ashes of a heifer mixed in a certain way put on you so that you would no longer be unclean you know all these works dead works that that's what he's talking about here Right? I, I tend to think of our religious dead works. You know, trying to light candles or, or say penance or whatever it is that we do to try to somehow, you know, undo our sin or do more good than bad or get God's attention. It's all dead works, right? He says, if, if, he says, it says it's a later, lesser to a greater argument. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, he's talking about ceremonial cleanliness, he says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Purify our conscience. Do you know a, a pure conscience is a very practical thing? All right, now, now maybe... You've been sitting here listening to all this stuff about the tabernacle, okay? And some of you might be um, into the detail. Maybe you're kind of theologically inclined and you're like, wow, this is cool. You know, all these connections between the tabernacle and the Eden and, and you know, the New Jerusalem. This is awesome. But, but maybe you're more of a practical person. And, and so you're thinking, you know, I got a busy life and I got a lot going on and I got a lot of decisions to make. And so, you know, what practical good is all of this to me? Well, let me, let me say this. A, a pure conscience is a very practical thing. Frankly, the gospel is incredibly practical. I had the chance this week to, to pray with um, Mr. Dan Bristol two days before he went to be with the Lord. And you know what? Uh, at the moment of your death, your faith 
or your lack thereof is immensely practical because that makes a difference for your future. Not only for the next few years, but like for the next millennium, times a billion and forever. And so the gospel is very practical here, okay? But let's just, let's just reduce all that thought for a moment to just conscience. As a, as a pastor, I see regularly how a guilty conscience affects people, like how it really affects their lives. It's like Lady Macbeth trying to, trying to clean the, the blood spot out of her hands, that imaginary spot of blood, and she couldn't, she couldn't cleanse herself. And, and criminologists and sociologists and psychologists tell us that, that, that people who are feeling really guilty often wash their hands a lot and, and take showers and try to get themselves clean, and they can't because they do not have a clean conscience. And so a guilty conscience has very practical benefits, very detrimental, not benefits, applica- uh, uh, effects, very, very detrimental effects. A guilty conscience affects lack of sleep and lack of focus, even brings on depression, and it affects relationships. It affects jobs. As a pastor, I also see, and I get to experience the, the joy of a clean conscience that's based on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, available to all who repent of their sins and trust in Him. There's nothing more beautiful than a clean conscience. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're struggling because you do deal with guilt from something long ago or maybe something as recent as yesterday. Let me just tell you, brothers and sisters, that if if you look to Jesus and if you confess your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness because of His sacrifice on the cross. So just look to Him today. He'll give you the gift of a clean conscience and the joy of serving the living God. I love how this text ends. Not just with, hey, you get to live with a clean conscience now and with an eternal glorious future, but you have purpose right now to serve the living God. You know, there's no greater honor than to serve the living God. So are you doing that? Are you serving God with your life? Or do you have your feet up on a footstool? Well, how should we respond to all this? Well, I I hope, brothers and sisters, I hope with joy. If you look at your bulletin, that's what we have on on the top right here, joy. I, I think of the joy of the shepherds as they rushed to see their Savior and their King in a manger. I'd like to remind you that in the new covenant, God now dwells in our hearts with us. God lives with us. And there is no greater joy than having a real relationship with the living God. And we've been given the privilege of bringing His light, the light of His presence, wherever we go. So I want to encourage you to do what Austin Adamanis did and a bunch of his buddies yesterday, this Christmas season. Uh, a number of you helped out in his neighborhood, put on a, a Bible club, showed them the real meaning of the season. Had a bunch of, bunch of families come 
And I was real proud of him and, and, the, and the youth who were involved. Um, good job, guys. Let's reflect his light this Christmas season. Let's bring it to our community. There's still time for you to invite a neighbor to come back tonight at 6. Let's give to our missionaries. Let's give generously to Lottie Moon to help bring that light to every nation on earth. And let's keep our mind on 2 Corinthians 4, 6, which says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's bow and really pray together. Great God and almighty King and Heavenly Father, because of the work of Jesus, teach us to pray. Teach us to long for your presence, to delight in even joining together with one another in coming before you, believing that you hear every word. It is a humble and powerful thing to be able to speak to you. And we don't do it because of our own worthiness. We do it because of the worthiness of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. And thank you for the access we have directly to you. So Lord, I pray that you would work powerfully in our hearts. Lord, help us to believe what we believe. I pray that the truths of the tabernacle that point us to Jesus, that point us to your plan for the earth, for our future, I pray that these things would resonate in our hearts such that this week we would be all about walking in step with you and making you known to others. So Lord, I pray that you would be pleased when you look at us. We know that you are because of Christ, but Lord, I pray that functionally we would live, live as though we believe you are real. And we thank you that you are, and we thank you that we have access to you because of the blood of our great Savior and Lord and Hero Jesus. In his name I pray, amen.